0: Well, here we are, Um, we're at the midpoint of Lent, about a little more than halfway through. And, fun fact, um, the church sometimes refers to this Sunday as Latare Sunday. Um, Latare is a Latin word meaning rejoice, and traditionally it's a Sunday where the somber tone of Lent is relaxed a little bit. Um, Some churches might use pink um, altar cloths and banners. Um, trying to reflect that brighter, more joyful mood. And it's a nice reminder during the sobriety of our Lenten disciplines that the extended feast of Eastertide is on its way. And this connects well with our sermon this week. We've been working our way through the well-known Sermon on the Mount where Jesus has been revealing some pretty startling things about the way he envisions us really living into and out of our identities as sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. Jesus seems to believe that the children of God are actually called to live lives that look really different from the way people live when they do not call God Father. And as sons and daughters of a holy and loving God, there are unique limitations, unique freedoms, and unique purposes that are not shared by the world around us. Now, up to this point, Jesus' communication style has been more purple than pink, if you will. His teachings regarding suffering, anger, sexuality have all been life-giving, and they've all revealed marvelous things about the character of God, but they've also been really sobering. Here in chapter 6, God is still revealing the character of God, and he's still showing us how the character of the God, that our Father, has a profound impact on the way we live. But instead of startling and challenging illustrations— of how we can live in ways that reflect the Father's nature, Jesus offers us some simple observations and reflections and deep assurances of the Father's care for us. And just like Latare Sunday, today's message has a somber context but serves as a reminder of the eternal Easter feast to come when we will be with him in person in the life after this one. So Jesus begins this section of his Sermon on the Mount with some instructions and observations that are beautifully clear. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also." Now, at face value, this is a really basic thing to point out, kind of like, hey, if the things you love most are physical objects, just FYI, they're going to wear out and they could get stolen. If what you treasure is made of material stuff, it's not going to last. Most of the stuff you have is going to give out during your lifetime, and anything that does outlast you, what good is it going to do you after you die? I don't know any human being who can argue with this reality. It is an utterly universal truth that describes the plight of every one of us. Every material thing we treasure is susceptible to loss and decay. This is true whether you're rich or poor. Whether you live in a sleeping bag under the L tracks or in a penthouse in the loop, you are vulnerable to the loss of your material possessions. Now, if you do happen to have a lot of material resources, that privilege might insulate us a little bit. It's easy for the rich to deny the inevitability of loss. I don't sleep with one eye open every night, worried that someone is gonna make off with all my possessions in the darkness. But that's not true of my friends who sleep in shelters or under bridges. They are painfully in touch with realities that I can afford to forget for a while. And that's a major difference between us here and Jesus's original audience. The bulk of my wealth, and perhaps yours too, can be stashed away in an interest-bearing, FDIC-approved bank account in a country with a pretty stable economy that stays relatively secure even during times of political upheaval. And this gives us a convincing illusion that material wealth is a good investment. Jesus' first audience did not have the luxury of this illusion. When Jesus mentions treasure, they would be thinking about a few genuinely treasured objects that they had maybe stored or hidden in their homes, maybe a fine set of clothing, um, maybe an alabaster flask of precious perfume, or the good set of tools. And they would know all too well the dangers that moth, and rust and thieves posed. There's another way in which Jesus' first century audience has the advantage over us. This depressing reminder of the transitory ephemeral nature of all our stuff is just half of it. Even if you're so fortunate as to continue to enjoy your current possessions for another 20 or 30 or 50 more years, even if they do outlast you, that just means you wore out before your stuff did. Mm -hmm. You may outlast your possessions, but the rest of them will outlast you. Maybe our plastic shopping bags won't ever really break down, but our bodies will. This life is short. I'm gonna press this somber Lenten theme a little further. I spend approximately one half hour a year remembering that from dust I came, and to dust I will return. That's during the imposition of ashes on Ash Wednesday. But the remaining 364 days, 23 hours, and 30 minutes of the whole year, I kind of live as if that weren't the case. I've been reflecting lately on the strange fact that I'm not sure I really believe in my own death. Seriously, I'm 48 years old. I have never seen anyone die. The only lifeless human bodies I've seen are in funeral homes. And in our culture, we hire strangers, technicians, to care for the bodies of our deceased loved ones. We view bodies carefully composed in restful postures coated in heavy makeup, designed to prolong the illusion of life just a little longer. Unlike the men and women of Jesus' day, I've never prepared a body for burial. Now, I know this is not an issue for everyone here. Some of you have suffered the death of a parent or a sibling at an early age. Some of you have lost a spouse or a child or a beloved friend to death. Some of you live with illnesses that force an awareness of mortality on your daily lives. Some of you are in professions that bring you face-to-face regularly with frailty and with death. But for those like me who have the luxury of not thinking about death for a while longer, it's important to recognize that our privilege in this area brings huge liabilities with it. One of which is that if I can't even recognize the inevitability of my own death, which no sane person can deny, I know that I'm out of touch with the reality of the afterlife and eternity as well. I think this is one reason that Jesus' frequent references to heaven and hell can feel so jarring to us moderns. To us, it sounds kind of crass or crude, to dangle heavenly crowns in front of our faces or scare us with threats of hell, it seems like he's being manipulative. And some Christians do use the afterlife that way. But that's not what he's doing. And I don't think that the people of Jesus' day would have seen it that way. Not because they were unsophisticated or naive. I think it's because they believed in the reality of their own death in a way that most of us weirdly sheltered first world moderns just don't. I filled out a little life expectancy quiz online this week. Barring unforeseen circumstances, (laughs) apparently my anticipated lifespan is 92. Now, in reality, I don't even have nine more minutes promised to me, but if I do live past 90, What is 90 years? If God spoke this planet into being, say, four and a half billion years ago, somebody tell me what fraction of that is 90 years. Can you do the math for 90 years over eternity? Whether or not we're ready to reckon with heaven and hell, we must recognize that our lives are dust. Your life is a wind that passes and does not return. Mine is a breath and a vapor. Jesus is right and good and so kind to remind us of this. We desperately need someone kind enough to speak this reality to us because our perspective on the scope and the meaning of our lives will dramatically affect our lives in this current lifetime And how we live in this current lifetime will dramatically affect our experience of eternity. Now, in light of the frustrating fragility of our stuff, in light of the tragic brevity of our own lives, how should we invest ourselves in the short time we have available to us? If we're ready to submit to the counsel of Jesus when he instructs us to stop stockpiling earthly possessions and start focusing on the treasures of the kingdom, what might that look like? What does it mean? And are we supposed to be so heavenly-minded that we cease to care about whether we have enough food or clothing? Let's look ahead at verses 25 through 33. Jesus says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, it's easy to read this do not be anxious as an admonishment or as an impossible command set forth by an impractical deity with no experience of the real world. It's like that be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect business all over again. (laughs) Show me the person who never struggles with anxiety and I will show you a person who has lost touch with reality. When I read this verse, I'm tempted to say, you have no idea what it's like to be human, do you God? (laughs) And then I realized that these words are coming from Jesus, who not only became human, but he became a man who, unlike me, chose to live his ministry years without a home, dependent on the hospitality of others for his food and his clothing. This is the man who said of himself, the foxes have their dens and the birds their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He is the one, not me, who fasted for 40 days and still said of himself, my food is to do the will of my Father. So it can't be that Jesus never had a reason to feel anxious. He was tempted in every way, just like we are. So what did he have that we don't when it comes to dealing with anxiety? Well, Thanks be to God, Jesus gives us the missing piece right away. Jesus never felt the need to be anxious because he was connected to a Father in heaven who loved him and provided for him. And what Jesus is working to communicate to us right here is that we share that exact same security with him. Jesus' Father is our Father too. So instead of hearing, stop it, don't be anxious, you should know better, listen to it this way. Good news. You don't have to be anxious anymore. You don't have to worry about food and clothing. You don't have to worry about anything because you are not on your own. The Father is with you. The Father is looking out for you. You are not solely responsible for your survival or your thriving. You have a Father in heaven who loves you and who desires to supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. The Father wants us to be able to live freely in his kingdom, He has made a way for you so that you can focus on the kingdom of God and his righteousness in an undistracted, wholehearted manner, without fear, without anxiety. This is the good life for you, attending to the treasures of heaven and allowing the Father to arrange the treasures of this earth in the way that he sees fit. I'm so grateful— to Anglican cleric R.T. France for pointing out that when Jesus describes the birds and the lilies and says that we are, are of more value than those creatures, those verses don't just mean that human beings outrank animals and vegetables in the hierarchy of value. He's saying that our lives are just more, they are more than food or clothing or birds or lilies or anything that can be touched or seen. These amazing bodies that God crafted for each of us, this incredible universe that he spoke into being, as glorious as all this terrestrial and celestial glory we have access to, our lives are meant for even more. This heaven and this earth stained with rust and corrupted by sin, will fade away one day very soon. But by his death and through his resurrection, Jesus is making all things new for us. Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus sets us free for freedom's sake. And all the spiritual riches of heaven are made available to us in Christ Jesus. You are his sons and daughters. You are the beloved children of the Father. You are free to invest yourself fully and completely into a life focused on everything that is meaningful and lasting. You are free to invest yourself fully right now in worship and in righteousness. You're free to do this because you're free to assume that the Father has your back. Now, the time that we have to unpack these rich words of Scripture always seem really limited on Sunday mornings to me. Um, And I know I'm moving right past several extremely rich verses that we could really dig into. Like, what exactly are the treasures of heaven? What's being talked about here? And so many more questions. We can't do all the questions, but I do want to throw this out there. God's word, holy scripture, is most definitely one of the eternal scriptures that we can invest in now. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And any little bit of your brief time on earth that you devote to the study of his word will reap eternal dividends. But for now, we're going to circle back ever so briefly, and address a potential area of confusion that Jesus thought it necessary to address with his original listeners. Since we are physical beings as well as spiritual ones, we might wonder if it's possible or even wise to sort of split our time and attention between our earthly concerns and the concerns of the kingdom of heaven. Maybe we should focus part-time on addressing the needs and wants of this life and give part-time attention to the kingdom of the next world. After all, Scripture has a lot to say regarding things like work, responsible planning for the future, caring for the physical well-being of ourselves and others. It's a reasonable question, but in this particular passage, Jesus tells us straight out that this balance or this tension um, is not one that can be resolved by a splitting, a fracturing of our time and attention separating eternal things from earthly things. Verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We need to understand that the concept of serving two masters is not the equivalent of employees working two different part-time jobs for two different uh, bosses. Um, What Jesus is saying is that you cannot be holy and absolutely dedicated body and soul to serving two different masters who both are laying claim to 100% of your devotion and time. If you are devoted to loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is the first and greatest command, there aren't any leftover bits and pieces to give elsewhere. During the prayers of the people, when we commend ourselves and one another and all our life to Christ our God, we're saying we're giving him everything. There isn't any more. Jesus is saying here, if you call him Lord over some areas of your life, but give lordship of other areas to something else, and perhaps this is out of the fear that you have needs that the Father won't or can't meet, There is going to come a time sooner or later when push comes to shove. You will have to choose between those competing lords. Competing gods have competing requirements. And when those irreconcilable differences inevitably arise, you will end up embracing one god and nudging the other one out of your life. There's not another outcome to that. But as we seek first the kingdom of the Father we are assured that all other legitimate concerns and priorities will find their proper place in our lives. The material goods that come our way will cease to be a matter of anxious striving or an alternate God and become what they were always meant to be, just another means by which we worship our Father. We may even find ourselves, like the unnamed woman who appears later in Matthew's Gospel, pulling out our treasured alabaster flask of nard and breaking it over the feet of Jesus in a carefree act of worship. If you're looking for ways to declare your confidence in the Father's love and provision for you, there are so many ways to do this, but I want to draw our attention to just one way that we can follow Jesus deeper into this teaching. And I chose this way because I know it will be meaningful and relevant to literally every follower of Christ here. In fact, we've acknowledged its importance to our community already this morning. I'm talking specifically about the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I don't know if there's a better and more practical way to demonstrate our dependence on our Father's provision than by ceasing work completely for one day out of every seven. If you don't currently observe a Sabbath, I warmly encourage you to begin, even this afternoon, in some small way. If you, like me, are already stumbling imperfectly along toward a regular observance of Sabbath, I warmly encourage you to keep on keeping on. When I first started trying to take the fourth commandment seriously, it's only about 15 years ago or so, I didn't have many examples to look to and I had not received any substantial church teaching on it even to speak of. Now, this is not your situation. Father Aaron has preached even in the last six months on Sabbath principles. And I know for a fact that he and others in our body here have sound practices of taking Sabbath rest. But to supplement that, I'm currently working on a tip sheet for Sabbath-keeping. I haven't finished it yet, but sometime between now and this Thursday, I want to make that available to you so that if you do not currently practice Sabbath-rest at all, consider right now setting aside like a medium-sized chunk of time, maybe four hours next Sunday afternoon to begin practicing, experimenting with Sabbath-keeping. But as a teaser... I'll give you one general guideline regarding Sabbath keeping and follow it up with one example of how someone here at Emmanuel applied this guideline in her life in one season. During your Sabbath, refrain from activities that bring you profit in your earthly endeavors. This is an affirmation of the reality that we are first and foremost sons and daughters of the most high God. We do not have to justify our existence by our contributions to this world. We do not have to scramble to take care of ourselves. We have a father in heaven and we depend on him to keep us alive and thriving. Emmanuel's director of finance, Nicole Sunga, told me once a while ago that back when she started law school, she made a commitment to continue her undergraduate practice of not studying and not doing homework on Sundays. This is very countercultural, particularly in a secular law school. Um, virtually all her classmates viewed Sunday evenings as prime time for preparing for classes uh, the following day. But Nicole is a very wise woman. She knew that risking potentially lower grades was a small price to pay for becoming more and more rooted in the kingdom of her father in the kingdom to come, the kingdom she will inhabit for the rest of eternity. And while she was justly proud of the efforts that led to her success in law school, she also understood that her success was a gift of her Father in heaven as well. So I commend her example to you in whatever season of life you're in. Let's close now. I'm going to close with some of my favorite verses on divine economy. Please hear these as an invitation directly from your Father in heaven. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.